Good morning. Good morning. Um, welcome as we continue our series on Romans. Um, if you didn't hear Jeff Clark last week or Phil Miles the week before, could I suggest that you catch them up? They are on podcast um, because they really do start flowing into this series that we're continuing on Romans. And everyone at Junction 10 who's preaching on Romans agrees that we could spend weeks, even months, on just one chapter. There's such a lot to pack in. Now, fortunately, I have an excellent wife, Vicky, and she's really great at slashing down my sermons. So we've got this one down to three hours. Is that okay? Um, this morning, though, we are tackling a really tricky subject uh, and, and in Romans chapter 9. In fact, Tim Keller, who's a highly respected pastor and theologian, says that chapters 9 to 11 are some of the most difficult to understand and appreciate. So we encourage you to read these chapters yourself again and again in your quiet time. Um, and it's because Romans 9 in particular talks about some key theological ideas about sovereignty and about election. And these ideas on the surface can seem very, very simple, um, but they are far from clear-cut. Often they're seen by different uh, understandings and different angles, depending on your denomination or the way that you come at these uh, chapters, and depending on your understanding of God and how he works in the world. And when we start digging a little bit deeper, these ideas can leave us with more questions than answers, and that's okay. Because these chapters, if you let them, will draw you into deep waters with some challenging paradoxes, some contradictions, and some tensions. When you read through chapter 9 yourself, you might find yourself saying, at certain points, I just don't know how that works. This chapter will, or should, Strike at your self-determination, your self-sufficiency, even your self-esteem. And you might be tempted to say, I don't believe that. Or there could be a temptation to take chapter 9 and twist it into a chapter that feels a little bit more comfortable. So how do we deal with a difficult passage, any difficult passage, but in particular Romans 9? Well, first of all, we recognise the mystery that we're not God, but we're humans. We're bounded in time and space, and we're limited by culture and a language that is vastly different to the language and the culture that the original text is written in. Secondly, we interpret Romans 9 in the light of the whole of Scripture and everything else that Scripture teaches us about God and his nature. And finally, and most importantly, we look to Jesus. Jesus who shows us the true Father. We have to see Romans 9 through the lens of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he came on earth to do. Because Jesus said of himself that he had come to reveal the Father. And if we've seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. So let's spend a few moments praying together and asking the Holy Spirit for help. So, Lord, this chapter's tricky, and I trust that you, Holy Spirit, 
will be working at many levels. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll be working at the level of our minds to help us comprehend unfathomable mystery. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll be working in our spirits to quicken us, to nourish us, and to grasp those things that are too lofty and deep for mere intellect. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll be working on our hearts, softening them, enlivening them, and giving us a greater passion for our wonderful God and Jesus' amazing gospel. And all God's people said, Amen. So, just for a very little bit of context, this is, I had a lot of context, we've slashed it down to a few sentences, but just for a little bit of context, Paul, who wrote Romans, was one of the major influences in the Christian movement in the early church. Before encountering Christ, Paul was a powerful religious leader, effectively the main man of his day. He persecuted the early church, he hunted Christians down, and then in a blinding light on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus appeared to him. And from then on, Paul became zealous for Jesus and for Jesus' church, preaching in Jewish synagogues. And then when he was rejected from the Jews, he would then go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, uh, and preach the gospel to them. He knew that both the Jews and the Gentiles not only needed to understand the gospel, but he wanted them to love and to live the gospel. And this is what Romans 9 is all about. You see, Christianity should not be just a matter of the head, that we believe the right things, but it should be a matter of the heart. A heart in which the Holy Spirit dwells and which is saturated by the gospel, which in turn leads to real transformation in our thinking, and in our behaviour. Amen. And just before we get into uh, Romans 9 and start a deep dive on it, it's important to, to place this epistle, this letter, in the meta-narrative of the whole canon of Scripture, or alternatively, the wide arc of the story, which is our story, that we find ourselves in. If you take any major chunk of the Bible, you will find yourself in the same flow of the story. It starts with God's unending love directed towards us. We've just sung about that. Longing for us to be one with him. Then us falling away, rebelling amidst the evil at work in a fallen world. Whilst God continues to call us, endlessly pursuing us with his lavish love. And then us finally coming to the end of ourselves and turning back to God's loving arms to be forgiven and accepted and restored. This is the amazing gospel that we love so much. There is a God in heaven who is good and who loves us. Amen. So, to navigate our time today, we're going to look at three themes to Romans 9. Theme 1 is the driving force of faith. We're going to see how Romans 9 provokes us into death-defying passion to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. And if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Romans 9 is not an argument for your theologians to have. 
It's an affection for Christians to feel. The goal isn't to find ourselves baffled by theological ideas or debates, but to find ourselves burdened, burdened with a passion for those who don't know Christ. We long for the salvation of others. And then point two is that we lean into the faithfulness of God. Now the key verse here is in Romans 9, verse 6. And I would underline it in your Bible. I don't underline my Bible, but lots of people do. If you do underline it, this is the one to underline. It is not as though God's word has failed. It is not as though God's word has failed. Despite the apparent paradoxes of Romans 9, we trust that God is good and that God is faithful. And then the final point is about our responsibility. Our call to follow Jesus as true disciples, to put him in the centre and to pray and to reach those who do not know him. So let's dive into point one, the driving force of our faith. Last week we heard that Romans 8 ends in a tremendous crescendo of confidence. Our salvation isn't based on our own will or strength, rather it's God who has called us. It's God who's opened our mind. It's God who carries us. And the ultimate statement, there is nothing. No power that could ever be found anywhere in the universe that can separate us or distance us from God's passionate love. And I think that's good news, don't you? And it's from this strong belief that nothing can separate us from God's love that Paul then launches into his next set of thoughts in chapter 9. And the main point in chapter 9 that Paul seems to be saying, and the one that drove his ministry, is that as Christians we long for the salvation of others. For eight chapters, Paul has been talking about the gospel, celebrating the gospel, and then you get to Romans 9 and he says... I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because Paul's fellow Jews, his brothers and sisters, were turning their backs on God in Christ, rejecting Jesus. And Paul is burdened for them. He's so anguished with great sorrow that in verse 3, he effectively says... I give, up, I give up my very own salvation and I would burn in hell if it meant that they would believe. Wow. Have we ever felt this way? Are we this passionate? What about unsaved friends? What about unsaved family? What about those people in our communities who don't know Jesus? Can we be this passionate? It, it's staggering. It's really staggering because for eight chapters, Paul has spoken about the amazing benefits of knowing Christ. But he would personally give all of that up if somehow his Jewish brothers and sisters were saved. This is a glimpse, just a little glimpse of the love for others that true belief in the gospel creates. 
This is what happens when you and I really believe the wonder of this gospel. We long to spend our life, to give our life, spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth, no matter what it costs. And I notice on the Eden team slide, one of the core tenets is living sacrificially. And I think that really gets at the heart of what Romans 9 is talking about. So do you see that Romans 9 isn't an argument for theologians to have? Despite tricky subjects like election and sovereignty and calling, the main heart behind it is a heart that says, I long for people to know the glory of God in Jesus, in Christ. So here in the early verses of Romans 9, we find that the people of God who had all of God's amazing promises of the Old Testament, the scriptures that the Jews believe in, are now turning against God. And so what Paul wants to do in verse 6 is to anticipate a few questions. A few questions like, well, have God's promises to the people of Israel failed? Is God not carrying through on his word? Is God really true to his promises? If all of these Jewish people are turning against God in Christ, what does that say about God's faithfulness? And this brings me to my second point, the faithfulness of God. Because can you hear that those questions sound very familiar? Don't those questions sound a little bit like the ones in the Garden of Eden that the serpent said to Eve and to Adam? Don't those questions sound a little bit like the ones that Satan tempted Jesus with in the garden, in, 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 um, in the desert, 40 days and 40 nights, and then Satan comes, if you are. Trying to get Jesus to question who God was. And Paul immediately rules this type of question out. Straight away, verse 6, it is not as though God's word has failed. How do you know that there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus? How do you know that everything in your life is going to work together for good because you love God and you're called according to his purposes? How do you know that God is going to be true to his word and that nothing is going to be able to separate you from his love? You can stand on the promises of God because he is faithful. Do you believe that, Junction 10? He's faithful. What Paul effectively does in the rest of Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11 is talk about how God is faithful to his word. We heard Kev pray that over the Eden team, that God, regardless of how long we have to wait, we know that his promises stand. And for the next few verses, around 6 to 13, Paul sets out to show that not all Israel is Israel. Now, this might sound a bit odd, but it is important to us today. Because you might recall that the arguments the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law had with Jesus often pivoted on the fact that their righteousness came because they descended from Abraham. It was a key issue of the day. But then John the Baptist comes along and he calls them a brood of vipers. And he said in Matthew 3 verse 8, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, 
we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus said something similar. John the Baptist, Jesus, they always seemed to point to the fruit of your life as the evidence of your faith. Rather than relying on something like the heritage or your own works or your righteousness. So in Romans 9, Paul is making a slightly similar point. The promises of God in the Old Testament were never given automatically to anyone who descended from Abraham. A spiritual faith was necessary to inherit the promises of Israel, of God's choice. And to help us think about, on the previous slide, uh, that God's choice, he talks about when God chose Isaac, our Ishmael. On this slide, he chooses Jacob. It reminded me a bit of Ekithump. I don't know whether anybody's old enough to, to choose or to pull out. And it's what we translate as elect. We can't deny God's election. This is where Paul starts. God's election, God's choosing, God's pulling out is about God. He chooses a people that they may know him as elect. God's choosing was, however, for a purpose. It was to show him to others. The idea of God's elect is all over Romans. So we do have to grasp the idea that God chooses stories about Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, that he chose what to do with that. It was God's sovereign choice. But this is at the root, feel as though I'm in religious history and everyone else is obt. And worse, earned or merited their choosing. It was never meant to be, and yes, being to be elite and part of an exclusive club or to be awarded over others. Which three? Is God unjust? Why? What, what conditions need to be in someone's life in order for them to be called by God? Because, look at verse 11. Who calls? And if you think, well, you know, in John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me to go. I, there's that fruit again. Fruit that will last. By God. And that God's call to salvation is a final point today. Based on every responsibility. People come to Christ as God draws them. And to pray for people's hardened hearts to be to pray for others, church. And we might ask the question, well, why to be saved some and not others? Is this call to salvation for some and not others? Well, let's look at 2 Peter 3, verse 9. God does not want, he wants everyone to come to repentance. Verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, that we are but have. But you know, anyone can harden their hearts, well did. Because God chooses us. This is where the mystery, then he puts a trinity and our salvation happens. Because salvation is a complete act of God. We accept it. John Stott says, uh, but if anybody's saved, the credit's God's. This past is consistent with scripture, history, 
and experience. If anybody's the blame's theirs. There's a really good illustration of this. It's like all illustrations, it's a little bit limited. And they're friends of mine. Kev, Joe, Rachel is beyond what... I know, I know people who are going to rob a bank, friends of mine. Finally, they doubt about it. I plead with them and they start out. I manage to rugby tackle Roy, but the remain And I get our head and rob the bank. A guard is killed in the process. And because we're in America, persecuted. Sorry. <laughs> Involved in the robbery obviously goes free. And I ask you, whose fault is it that those in my fault, Mons, I'm just telling, we're executed. The story, I'm just telling the story. <laughs> Can he say, because my heart is good, I'm a free man? No, the only reason he's free. But he chooses to restrain his own sovereignty to give us choices. He placed, just like he did, with at the centre. He told them, what did he tell them? No. And this is a great picture of God's relationship with his kids and the world. He grants us the free will to choose. Now, but I, I watched the film, The Shack film. We watched it the other week. And the main character, God, is really struggling. Shack is struggling. Am I free to, re to leave? And God replies, walk out. That I'm not interested. God gives us choices in the knowledge we may not always consult with him. We may end up hardening our heart, ignoring him, or rebelling again. A rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, loved him, inherit eternal. What to do? You can see the scripture there on the screen. But the rich young ruler walked away. It is hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And be saved, really taken aback. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God, about God's election and his sovereignty. Jesus, an invitation and a choice. But Jesus let him, that Jesus does away. The disciples question. He doesn't have who's in and who's out question. And you know, too often um, we can approach the question, but this is really an easy understanding of salvation. Sometimes something called Calvinism again. I was going to talk for about 30 minutes on thank her for sparing you on that history lesson. Um, but Christ, and we've tended to call that salvation. Jesus to be saved. And we boil the gospel down, hell boundaries, getting people to make a decision to our heaven when you die club. Jesus gives us a different view of salvation, so does the Bible, because and the complete salvation of a person, it starts out here, but no way does it end there. He wants disciples, not converts. And yes, being a disciple there, we do, it does make a decision for Christ. So that, unlike the rich young ruler, that's only the start of an ongoing salvation process, centre of your life. Now, last week, Jeff Clark, who preached, justification, justification. Just as if you'd never sinned, thank you. Incomplete picture of salvation. There is so much more started uh, revival and started the Methodist movement said this 
by salvation, I mean or going to heaven. According, but listen to this. But a present, and I would say, ongoing deliverance, the renewal of our souls after the image of God. I think when we say that we are just like God, we're just like we've achieved salvation. We've been fully restored. But can anyone in this room, hand on heart, say that that's what is all God? It is an ongoing but the contradiction is, we also do. We turn to Jesus not just to be a member of an elite apprentice club, but craft of Jesus's easy yoke. And this is why Jesus wants if statements. John 8, 31. John, you are my disciple. People will know you are my disciples if you love one. truly my disciples. Matthew 16, 24. If you follow me. After me, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, hate, be, but hate doesn't mean what we think hate means. I'll do that another time. Devotion. He wants us to be free from the invisible cage of sin, as he's freeing us favory of one sinful activities and desires. It can be difficult and hard. To be crucified. So he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He hasn't quite been arrested. Works without choices. Jesus knows the only way that he could price, yes? All people. To he's in prayer. He's agonizing in the garden. And Jesus says, but then what does he say? Yet not as I will. Which shows us that Jesus had the opt mind not to cooperate with the will of God. But he would be tortured, would be crucified. He was knowing for the joy set us have a way back to God. For the joy set before him that he endured the cross. God's ways. But he says, who are we to talk back to God? Who are we to talk to God? I would, I would encourage you to do that. But in terms of God's ways... I'm loose change. We are the clay. Pocket. He can spend me as it's a mises. Loving, he's ever faithful, and we can trust him whatever we're going through. On the cross, it's always understand. Tree over Satan. He took the keys of death and Hades. He is the victorious conqueror. Glorious conclusion until Jesus comes again. Do you believe in the now and the not yet of the kingdom? It has come, and it is coming. But he sent his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's already happening and being done on earth. Do you think Jesus would have Because we have an active part in praying for heaven to come. Whether we will have sorrow. Well, why do we have sorrow? But rather... What do we do with that sorrow when it's in inevitably? We weep and we long for his coming, not just for ourselves, but for the world. And we live in a fallen world where evil is rife. And like we heard last week in Romans 8, 28, again, working everything. You are the all-knowing God who is present everywhere, all the time. You are all-powerful, yet you abandoned her. This is God. If you are who you say you are, where were you when I needed you? Of me. You're trying to make sense of your world in your life is that you don't think I'm good. 
even when you you would know that I'm at work in your life for your good. We have a faulty thinking when it comes about God's sovereignty. Puppet master who should be pulling all the strings. And we think that because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, to make everything okay, which he is, to make my life comfortable, to avoid pain for me. And then when the pain does come, standing. Can I have the worship team back, please? We lose sight of what Jesus came to reveal. God as loving Father. All our diversions after is the saddest. Can I say to you, Junction 10, don't leave you. So we come back to the issue at hand here. Passage 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. Yes, our saving seeds, all men to be saved and to come to one saved? No. Are things out of control? No. I think it's a mystery. And not everyone. This is where our responsibility really comes into focus. This is why Jesus gives us the job. He commissions us to make disciples of all nations. That's the reality that Paul's bring is responsible for how we respond to Christ. We respond by faith and not by word to Jesus. And this is where we're talking about the stumbling stone. That's Jesus. And he's saying that the Jews exactly the same thing for every person in this room. One day you and I will one of us for what we've done with Christ. You won't be able to say, well, you're a sovereign God and I want whether you've received Christ or rejected Christ, whether you've followed him, ever believed Christ. It's not really for you to wonder, am I for you? God has your sin, you've neglected or turned away or rebelled against God. Yet he sent his, his power over sin in resurrection for anyone. So as the worship team play, as I said at the start, we and back and through the lens his preach is the one that Jesus told to give us a true picture of his father in heaven lost son and this is the picture of God I think he's searching always seeking and then runs to us arm John 1 says effectively Jesus came to his own people the ones who said yet no thanks to the ones who received him he gave power power for what? listen carefully children of God Junction 10 John 1's on the screen the whole passage from the message version to you and as I read let this scripture breathe over you Holy Spirit come and breathe the life light was the real thing it was in the world and life it was there through him yet the world deserved and notice talking about want him but whoever did want him who believed true selves they're children of God selves these are God begotten not blood and moved begotten or sex blood we saw the glory with our own eyes the one of a kind glory like father start to finish and father God I pray for everyone in this room that initial invitation to come follow for those who turn and run or have fallen away, be welcomed with open arms. For those of us who are following you, Jesus' name.